1: Hey folks, before we get to this week's episode of Positively Trek, I'd like to take a moment to give a special thanks and shout out to some of our Patreon supporters. It is you who makes it possible for us to bring you this show each week. So, thank you so much to Carl Morris, Joyce Marin, Jim Stoffel, Dave Garcia, Rick Young, and Paul D. Kinnear. To become a Patreon supporter of Positively Trek, simply go to patreoncom Positively Trek. You can join at any level, which will give give you early access to some episodes and access to other features including associate producer credits and shout outs thank you so much to those of you who have already pledged to help out the show and to everyone else thank you so much for listening and now let's get on with the show
0: oh no i know hamlet and what he might say with irony i say with conviction what a piece of work is man How noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form, in moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god. Surely you don't see your species like that, do you? I see us one day becoming that cute.
2: Yet again, we're going right into The Lost Era. We've been reading all The Lost Era books, and now we have another one to read by Christopher L. Bennett called The Buried Age. And Dan, how are you doing? Hey, Bruce. Not too bad. Uh, Glad to be
1: here with you. Positively Trek Book Club. And like you said, once again, diving into The Lost Era, one of my favorite periods of Star Trek that we didn't know much about until all these wonderful authors gave us these stories set in that time.
2: You know, I was thinking recently and a friend of mine had this idea and said, you know, now that we're ending this lit verse continuity with the Coda books, the authors are probably going to dabble more into the time frame of the series. And of course, Picard and Discovery and so on and so forth. But it's like now would be a good time to go into the Lost Era even more so that they're not stomping on the feet of the people who are making the TV shows. What do you think about doing that?
1: I mean, I'm always, I I would always be up for that. I love this period of time. I, I I do wonder how much demand there is for that. I I I'm curious how well these novels sold at the time, and with the audience now, how many people would buy them? Just given that we're so far removed from it now, and and into a new era of Star Trek. But as a reader, I would be all over that for sure.
2: Yeah, me too. But I think you're right. I I don't know what the appetite is out there for this. You know, it's kind of sad. I'll take any era (laughs) as long as it's Star Trek. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Me too. Absolutely. Well, The Buried Age came out in July of 2007. So I guess this is 14 years ago. And I just read this about three years ago, I think it was, for the first time. How about you? Mm -hmm. Actually, me too. Uh, I I guess about
1: five years ago for me. So a little before you, but still fairly recently compared to when it was published.
2: Yeah, I don't know why I didn't read it at the time, but I'm glad I eventually did get to read it and read it a second time for this. So Mm -hmm. we're going to dive into this. Yeah, so it takes place (laughs) nine years before TNG the next generation. And it leads up to Picard getting the Enterprise, which is nice. So it's that bridge between him commanding the Stargazer and then getting the Enterprise. And the book's divide into four parts, which I think is kind of nice. I tried to read it each night where I would read a part and then read part two the next day, whatever. Sometimes I wasn't always accomplishing that, but I was trying to do that to divide it up into four sections.
1: Yeah, I I had a fun time reading this novel. I like that it's divided into those four parts, like you said. Uh, As has been kind of my habit lately, I actually read most of the novel over the last two days (laughs) right before we recorded, just because of life getting in the way and stuff and not finding a lot of time to read. But uh, I did uh, kind of... yeah get through the last half of the novel very recently. So maybe a little rushed, but uh, I really enjoyed the story. And and again, like I said, it's the second time reading it, but uh, I really enjoyed it this time around as well.
2: So it's more fresh in your mind than mine because I finished it about a week ago. So I'm going to okay. rely on you to remind <laughs> me of things. <laughs> but I feel like it's pretty fresh in my mind. I don't know. We'll see. This so, is
1: one of those ones that sticks with you, I I just want to say, because I... A lot of times I'll read a novel five or six years after I've read it the first time and I'm like, wow, I really don't remember a lot of this. But this one was very much like as I was reading it, I was like, oh, yeah, okay, I remember this. Oh, I remember that. So it really stuck in my mind for all these years, which I think speaks to the quality of the novel.
2: Yeah, I agree. There was a lot of it that stuck with me, too. Of course, it had only been a few years but there's times i've read novels that were 3 years ago and i still don't remember a lot of it but this one i did remember Absolutely. a lot of but there's so much detail in this book mm-hmm. as i was reading this i thought if i'm preparing notes for the show it's like there was so much stuff i was like oh i'd like to mention that oh i'd like to mention that uh, it was just too much he you know christopher bennett goes really deep into things like for example they could be passing by a planet And he's going to tell you the history of the planet, you know, I mean, which makes it so enriching when you read the book. Oh, yeah. Yeah. His world building and his fleshing
1: out of the Star Trek universe is a big part of why I really love his writing. And I'm just going to throw the term out there. It's come up before when we talk about Christopher L. Bennett, but continuity porn, right? Like almost every character in this novel, almost every single one we've seen before or has been referred to before in Star Trek. And he just takes these little references and fleshes them out. Like you said, he gives so much detail and so much expansive stuff on known things from the Star Trek universe. It's such a joy to read that.
2: I totally. Yeah. Just love that about his writing. And you know, I was thinking after I read this book, you could almost make a mini encyclopedia of this book alone because there's so much detail in here, (laughs) you know? Well, I was looking through Christopher L. Bennett's annotations, which he
1: has on his website, and it's basically a mini encyclopedia about the book, so you're not
2: wrong there for sure. <laughs> That's a good point. I did go back and read those too. Uh, yeah, he's got a whole list, chapter by chapter, tells you what page. It, if you read this book and you want more detail of why he did some things or give you background on some areas uh, that he put in the book or where they came from, yeah, it's, it's all there. A whole list of stuff. I thought it's really yeah. cool.
1: I'll definitely put a link to that in the show notes, which I don't usually do, but maybe uh, for at least for Christopher L. Bennett's books, I should probably start doing.
2: (laughs) Yeah, because I think he does it for almost all of his books. Uh, So Mm -hmm. if you even read one of his other books, you can go back to the site and read some of those. So the one thing I want to ask you as we're jumping into this book, because it starts off with Picard on the USS Stargazer. And... There's a series of books that were published, not all by Christopher L. Bennett, different authors. I think Michael Jan Freeman is one of the main ones.
1: But, yeah, he's he's the one that does the Stargazer novels, yeah.
2: But have you read all those? I think I've only read maybe one or two. I've only read
1: uh, Reunion, which was kind of like the introduction to them, an old uh, TNG hardcover. Uh, and The Valiant, and I've never read the actual, like, Stargazer series. It's always been on my list to get to, but I, I haven't gotten to it. Maybe, uh, hey, maybe, you know, future uh, book club episodes here.
2: That's so funny. The two you mentioned are the two I've read, too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I think if we do them, we'll have to start with them. So,
2: yeah. Because <laughs> I know Reunion was a hardcover. Mm-hmm. Uh Were both of those? I think both of them were hardcovers, was it? I'm I'm not sure. It's possible. I know the first one was.
1: Yeah, Valiant I have as a mass market paperback,
2: but it might have been a hardcover. I'm not
1: sure off the top of my head.
2: Well, you know, in the TNG episode "The Battle," we find this whole thing of Picard, and he's looking back at his time on the Stargazer, and we're fighting the. Ferengi that's trying, you know, Bach that's trying to get his revenge for Picard killing his son and all that stuff. So that's kind of where we pick up here in this storyline in the first part of the book, which I enjoyed seeing those events play out, which we didn't of course see on screen.
1: Yeah, this was really exciting to me because, uh, again, Christopher L. Bennett taking something we know from canon and that we've seen glimpses of and expanding on that. So like even the dialogue on the bridge during the encounter is taken from the TNG episode, The Battle, while Picard's reliving it thanks to Damon Bach's machinations in that episode and stuff. And yeah, it was really fun to see it play out. And even seeing Christopher Bennett kind of deal with little continuity glitches, like in that scene in the battle picard refers to vigo even though vigo died early on in the battle <laughs> and picard yes. kind of had it's just slipped his mind kind of thing in the heat of the moment and stuff and I'm, I, I love those little flourishes that i could tell that's that's just like christopher bennett's analytical mind dealing with all these little minutiae and, and i can totally see how his brain works putting this together because he knows all
2: that stuff You know, he knows all that minutia, like you just mentioned. It's like he knows how to work it, work it in, make everything fit. He doesn't let anything get by him, you know. And I think Mm -hmm. that's for the most part, the other authors are good at that, too. But he really goes into the minutia, like you said. Yeah, and we'll definitely see that
1: more as the the novel goes on, and stuff that I hadn't remembered reading this that I'm like, oh, wow, he set that up. Oh, that's set up perfectly, too. Like It's so great
2: to see him at work here. Oh, I can't wait to hear some of that. Uh, I'm really (laughs) interested now. So my favorite part of this first part of the book was the court-martial. I really enjoyed that. I could have taken a whole book on that one. I was disappointed when it ended. (laughs) 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 <laughs>
1: <That's so good. laughs> yeah me too. That was one of the things that I kind of misremembered. I remembered that being a bigger part of the book than it was, and I think that 's because it it featured so large in my mind reading this as a part that I enjoyed so much and uh getting the getting the characterization of Philippe Louvois. And seeing her backstory and getting a bit of an explanation for why she's so antagonistic and and driven and stuff. Uh, apparently she was she lived among tellerites for a while. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> yes. remember that I thought that was great
2: <laughs> but <laughs> that was funny.
1: I remember first reading this novel and being a little disappointed in her characterization because I'd kind of built up this idea of her as being like career-minded and driven but In this novel, she's almost like crazed in her attempt to, uh, prosecute Picard, which I remember when I first read it, I was like, seemed a little too far to me, but at the same time, it also really explained the animosity between the two of them, Picard and Louvois, as we see in The Measure of a Man. And this time around, I I felt it much more fitting when I was reading it. And, uh, Christopher Bennett even refers to, in his notes, uh, a deleted scene from The Measure of the Man that really informed this, where Picard says, The Stargazer court-martial. It should have been a routine hearing. Yes, I had lost my ship, but my actions were entirely justified. Philippa was assistant to the prosecution. She dug up every obscure case and citation, and the panel hammered at me for three days. It damn near ended my career. It did end us. I was like, Ooh. wow,
2: yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> it does. That fits really well with this book, that scene, for sure. Mm-hmm. Because I agree with you. It's, she comes across very much of a, I have to prove that even though I dated this man, I'm, I don't have any bias. I don't have, you know, I got to prove that I can fight against him, that I'm not on his side. Like, I felt like she had something she had to prove. And even everybody else is telling her just to, like, you know, back down. Like, just, just do your job. You don't have anything to prove. You know, but she seems so obsessed by that.
1: Yeah. And so much so that it goes the other way. Like what she came across as, as someone who is trying to bury Picard and get back at him for something. And I think the people around her see that and that she's gone too far and gone to the other side, basically, which is like, she's got some personal stake in this and some reason to want to destroy Picard. And that's not the case. Like she's just trying to overcompensate for their relationship, but it really does start to like, like when she betrays a bedroom confidence in order to make a point, (laughs) like that moment is just like a, Oh dang moment, you know, like that's not cool.
2: I would almost say that if someone listening to this is not a big reader, but just likes to hear about the books, if you like the episode, The Battle and The Measure of a Man, just read the first part of this book. I think that would satisfy you enough right there. Just like it'd be a short story that really is intense and you're seeing that battle and then this court martial play out. I thought it was all really well done
1: mm-hmm agreed yeah for sure and then once you've read those i mean you know keep reading because it's a really good book
2: <laughs> yes agreed i don't think you could stop but you know who knows but yes definitely read this book i guess that kind of gives away that we like it i think it was pretty obvious at the beginning <laughs> i think so <laughs> so then we go uh to picard who is now he's getting his doctorate in archaeology and he's at this university and he runs into his old friend Guinan. She starts going through all this stuff about this lost civilization. And by the way, I liked his teaching. I liked seeing him teach and talking about the timeline of history of just these huge gaps of time that what we call ancient is so now compared to the overall timeline of the entire universe, that when he plots it on the chart, what you see of what we call now and ancient civilizations is but a speck on that timeline. I thought that was really cool.
1: Yeah. I I love the idea of these, these huge span spans of time. And I, I took an anthropology course in university and it was something similar where, you know, we had the, the timeline of, Uh, The entire time that humans have been a species on Earth, you know, this big, huge timeline that stretched from one side of the blackboard to the other. Yes, blackboard. I'm that old. Uh, And on one like the just the very last little tiny bit of the blackboard of the timeline of humanity being on Earth is like when agriculture came into being. And when we started recording history, And it's like this little tiny blip. And then she blew that up and said, here's the history of the world. And that entire bit of humanity is a little blip on the end of that. And that's where that ended because that's, that's real life. That's what we know and stuff. And, But this novel takes that and even makes that a tiny little blip on the end of this huge timeline of the universe and and the galaxy and the species that existed and lived and died out and and disappeared. And we have these mysteries of the mass extinctions and stuff. It's so much fun. The word epic gets thrown around a lot these days for, you know, basically nothing. But this novel really does deal with these huge epic ideas and... Uh, it's fun to kind of expand your mind reading this and imagine these huge epochs and, and the, the just the huge timescales involved. It was a lot of fun to kind of think about that. I, I had like Stargate SG-1 in mind and, and like all these things that deal with the ancients and, and species that came before us and stuff. It was a lot of fun.
2: It's almost like when you think about like, like in America, people from other countries go like, oh, this you say this is an old house. It's only a hundred years old. Like come mm-hmm. to my country, like an old house is several hundred years old. It's the, and it's like our time now. And when we talk about ancient times, even thousands of years ago, it's still just a blip on the timeline of the universe. And then as you were talking about that, it started to make me think how we're also just a tiny speck on the line of, if you were to plot every what you know, all the planets that there are in the universe, or just a speck, mm-hmm. it just shows you how much smaller we are when you consider our place in the universe and in the universe timeline. We're basically <laughs> almost at zero. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Well, there's the the you know the famous
1: explanation of the history of the earth and this is just the earth where if you plotted all of earth's history on a calendar reaching from january 1st to december 31st humanity shows up in like six or seven minutes to midnight on december 31st like (laughs) we're just yeah we are just such a tiny blip in the cosmic scale of things
2: dang i never heard of that that's cool (laughs) It's, yeah, it's pretty wild. (laughs) I feel so small right now. But yeah. (laughs) But that's what I like about this novel. It's not going to some ancient civilization on some other planet that was just maybe a few thousand years ago or even a hundred thousand years ago. It's like, you know, millions of years ago. I mean, not like 250 million (laughs) years ago. Like, and it's still a speck. It's still. You know, like in other words, Christopher L. Bennett saying, you know what, in Star Trek, we explore this huge galaxy because there's so much in this universe, so so much we can go to visit. But you know what, there's so much in the timeline too that we can visit. Mm-hmm. And that's just overwhelming in itself. And I love that Picard is on this mission and that Picard is at university and he's learning more about archaeology. And that gives us more of the background of. Why Captain Picard has such an interest in archaeology. This has always been a love of his, and it's enough that he was able to leave Starfleet and pursue that for a while and even consider not going back to Starfleet. And Of course, we know he goes back, but he's very much like, you know, an Indiana Jones in sort of a sense of just wanting to pursue the next best treasure that's out there.
1: Yeah, I totally had an Indiana Jones vibe from this as well, a little bit, which that that was fun for sure. But yeah, Picard in academia, like it just—I—I I was thinking, of course, and he's brought up a few times in the novel. Doctor Galen, right, his mentor and stuff, saying that he should be an archaeologist and he should be traveling the galaxy with him, doing that stuff. I thought like this is kind of the road not taken. Like there's a parallel reality very close to the prime universe where Picard did choose this for his life instead. And we get like, yeah, just a little glimpse of it here, a little slice of what that Picard might have been like.
2: Yeah. And then he goes off on this quest with Dr. Langford and who works with him at university and they're on this Cleopatra's Needle ship and he's not the captain. Like he's often reminded, you know, you're not the captain. We're all in equals. Where there's no rank, and he's just like, yeah, and and this is this is your mission. This is your quest. No, this is yours. <laughs> you know, kind of. And there's <laughs> kids on the ship. Well, he doesn't know how he feels about that, but you know, they're going to be gone for like nine months or whatever. And you know, some of the staff, uh, from university are going to bring. Some of their kids and their spouses, because you know they're going to be gone a long period of time, which of course then leads into what we see in TNG on the Enterprise. So I mm-hmm. was kind of see my memory of reading this book was that my, the first time I read this book, thinking back on it, I thought it was more of Picard liked kids. Until he was stuck on a ship with kids and they started to drive him crazy. But this time I read it, it, was more like, no, he still didn't really care for kids even before this mission. But that was how I remembered it in my head.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There And there are a few changes that Picard goes through to turn into the Picard that we see in TNG. And like we'll get to those, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, no, he never, never really liked kids. And I loved the times that that was portrayed as a bit of confusion on his part, like when he says like, oh, we've only been out here six months, like there's so much more that we need to do. And Dr. Langford's like, Picard, like these people need to get back to their homes, to their families, to their lives. And he's like, oh, uh, I mean, okay. I, I didn't even think of that. But Picard's just such a lone wolf. Like he struck out on his own from his family and and has no desire to go back to Labar and and be on the on the plantation or anything. He he just wants to be out and and living his life and doesn't really get it that other people have homes and lives and families that they feel are imp- as important or more important than you know being out here making discoveries. I mean, he's a natural born explorer. He would be if he lived in the old world setting out for the quote new world and, and just going for years and not looking back.
2: It kind of makes me think about some friends that I have who are single that want to spend the night out all night. And then eventually I'm like, I, well, I got to go back home. I have a family. <laughs> <You know? laughs> But yeah, so he's going to look for this artifact, this rumored artifact that he heard from, from Gynen. Thanks, Gynen, You're the one who set all this up. But of course, we got the whole history of Gynen because she already knows who Picard is even before this century. She knows his past. She knows where he needs to land. So it's one of those paradoxes of like, you know, did he get to the Enterprise before he met Gynen, and then later met Guinan when we see him in... Um, Oh, the I didn't name of that episode.
1: Times Arrow, yeah.
2: Yeah, when we see him in Times Arrow, uh, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. did Times Arrow always happen? <laughs> yeah, that was going
1: through my head a bit as well, because Guinan feels that she needs to guide things to make sure that that all happens. But if she hadn't done that the first time around, would it have happened? And when I say the first time around, that doesn't even make sense because right. it only happened once, but. Would with, with, was Gynon always there? I don't know. It's the the whole temporal mechanics thing. Like Janeway says, it gives me a headache.
2: <laughs> oh, and good thing you mentioned Janeway because we're going to get to her in just a moment here. But so <laughs> Picard and his crew end up uh, visiting this planet where we have the the Mabre and and he. looking for this artifact which then leads them to another planet believe me i'm just really skimming the surface of this and so Mm -hmm. they go to this other planet where they find this null sphere and they find this section where time has been frozen for 250 million years and even was it i think it was uh that went into it and you know got attacked by you know couldn't survive some of that you know i mean she she ended up being fine she was part of the mabray but it was like this weird thing of like time was frozen still but yet they detected that there might be life forms in there and they wanted to use the transporter to beam it out but who can help them with that starfleet could help them with that the uss mary kingsley with lieutenant Catherine janeway yeah and we get uh,
1: once again you know characters we know from the star trek universe being brought in and and Christopher Bennett using them and putting his pieces on the board. I really enjoyed this. I love that Janeway in Voyager has a science background and we get to see her doing that science here and her as, you know, a a young upstart officer who's very eager to do science and be out there. That was a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun kind of picturing a young Janeway here.
2: I did too. I kept picturing Kate Mulgrew picturing her a little younger like when she did was it called mrs columbo back in the day Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. early in her career and i loved how picard later said you know that she deserves a promotion i i thought that was cute um i was a little disappointed that she wasn't there for the whole novel because i was really enjoying her being there but you know it's a Picard novel for the most part. It shouldn't be necessarily a Picard Janeway. I never got the impression that they worked an extended period of time together anyway, but it was pretty cool to see her. And I loved this whole MacGuffin, this whole status field that just is frozen in time and they're going to beam these beings out of it and such. It's like that I thought was really interesting. Did you like that part of it? Yeah, it was It was fascinating And the one thing that struck
1: me from reading it this time was just how into it that Christopher Bennett got with the science. Like I was looking at one part and there's like two straight pages of talking about quantum probabilities and tunneling particles and, and all this stuff that like, frankly, is way over my head, but Seeing a group of professional scientists talking about it and and working it out and coming to conclusions and and sort of thing, I was into it. Like, I, I didn't understand most of what they're saying, but, you know, you can kind of just follow it as on the technobabble side of it and just see that, like, oh, this process of these scientists working this problem out and coming to a solution, like, that's just so Star Trek. I loved it. But yeah, he's so into the weeds on the science here. That must've been a daunting task to research and come up with things that sounded probable because like, as much as I don't understand a lot of the science reading through it, it makes sense how they work the problem and stuff. So that, that was really cool.
2: I'm with you. Uh, yeah. I was just like, oh, this is over my head. I wish I could have spent more time with it, but I had to get through the book so we can do the show. But I thought this is one of those things that I want to go back on and just read that again slowly and comprehend it. And I'm just curious if a scientist read that, if that would make sense or if they'd be like, oh, this is ridiculous or something, because it sounded so good. I was just like, <laughs> okay, does this guy know what he's talking about? Because if he doesn't, it sure sounds like he does. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So they beam out this species called the manreloth and only one of them survives. And she's suffering from amnesia and Picard gives her the name of Ariel because of the whole mythological meaning of Ariel. And she just seemed to fit that. And they eventually fall in love. So what'd you think of this storyline of the love story between Picard and Ariel? Because I liked it, but at the same time, I'm like, but this is somebody that was so important in his life for a long period of time, but we never heard of her again. Mm -hmm. But that's explained as well, too, which I think is so brilliant.
1: I, I love that. Christopher Bennett has explanations for everything. So, you know, that, that I was able to write off easily enough by the end of the novel, but yeah, I really appreciated this story and it, it's kind of a bit of a signature of Christopher Bennett as well. I mean, there's a certain amount of sexiness that happens in his books and this definitely is, is part of it as well. We have this amazing, beautiful creature, uh, the Manroloth Ariel and, and, the relationship she strikes up with Picard and, and what we find out later about her motives and, and how she's doing this sort of thing. It really makes sense that, you know, to manipulate Picard and, and not intentionally manipulating, I think early on, but you know, later on as as new things come to light and, and she learns and remembers certain things that kind of becomes more apparent, but you know, this, this kind of relationship makes a lot of sense for what she's trying to accomplish and and what ultimately happens. And for Picard's part of it, I get it. Like it would be extremely alluring and tempting and that sort of thing. And, and I feel like that's a big aspect of this novel is like the temptation of Picard and, and that kind of thing and where it leads him and stuff. So I, I actually really appreciated this part of the novel. And even like the aesthetic bits of it, like she's kind of got these butterfly scales. And when she and Picard are intimate, he looks in the mirror and sees he has scales on him. And <laughs> from I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Like, I, I love the attention to detail
2: that he's given this relationship and this biology of this, cre- of this person. Yeah, I could really visualize her based on his description. And like you said, just, mm-hmm. you know, the butterfly tails and... And such, just the softness of her and the intelligence of her. And she seems to know all these things and doesn't really know why, but she's so brilliant, you know, at what she's doing. She's really robbing the cradle here because, I mean, she's millions of years older than this young kid, Picard, you know, which is Absolutely. funny because that was never really mentioned. <laughs> about that yeah, and it's funny.
1: Yeah, because that was on my mind a lot when I read this novel. And I, I was looking at my review. I re- I wrote a review of this novel back in 2016 when I, when I read it the first time. And a lot of that relationship between Ariel and Picard uh, reminded me of Doctor Who, which I had just started watching at the time. And how like the doctor is this ancient person who's lived for such a long time. And like anytime he has a companion he or she has a companion, I should say at this point, um, it's that relationship must be analogous to like a pet, right? Because the lifespan of the companion is so short compared to the doctor. And in this case, it's even more so Picard's lifespan is just like a blink of an eye compared to Ariel. And yeah, like it would be just like, Oh, you, you sweet little creature. Uh, you're so ephemeral and, and, You know, like there could never be a meeting of equals between the two of them.
2: Yes, that is very true. But I guess in a lot of ways, too. I mean, as we find out later, she's kind of using him. So, you know, Mm -hmm. but do you believe I mean, we're going we're already into spoilers anyway. Do you believe she really loved him? It sounds like she did. I think so, at least at first. I think so. And then at a certain
1: point, she regains her memories. And from that point, for sure, it's all manipulative and that sort of thing until maybe the very end. But before that, the jury's out a little bit. I think so. I think she did. But for sure, after a certain point, she's just using him. So it's it's hard to say. Like It's one of those things that When I'm reading it, I think I go back and forth on it a little bit because like I'm right there with Picard, like the betrayal when it happens is so sudden to me. And then like you kind of fill in the pieces backwards and you're like, oh, wow. Oh, she's been manipulating him since this point. Well, what about before then? I, I'm i not sure. Right. So I really find myself in the place of Picard, just really questioning everything. And I, I feel like he would be questioning every memory he has of her for the rest of his life, which is, that, that's brutal.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and other people have had relationships like that too. You start to look back at things like, I feel used, but was was this all a lie the whole time or did this happen later? Was Were these things real in the past? Were they, these feelings real from this person that they expressed to me? I don't know. I think they were maybe early on, but maybe they weren't. You know, it's like that. And, you know, I, yeah, I can also talk from experience and everybody can probably relate to this. But whether it's a romantic relationship or a friendship or whatever, you may question for the rest of your life when you look back at that and go, was that friendship or that relationship real? You know? Mm -hmm. Um, Absolutely. I didn't really think that much about it until now. (laughs) So, but yeah. (laughs) um, Yeah. I can relate to that. So, and it can affect you because it can affect how you approach other relationships. Therefore we see how it affects Picard and how he is when he boards the enterprise and, takes command there. So how that affects his relationships. But I do enjoy that as they're going on this journey, he eventually does rejoin Starfleet because he starts to also realize he needs Starfleet's help. He almost becomes obsessed with trying to find these other status fields and and saving these other beings that are stuck in there. And he can't do it on his own. He does need Starfleet's help and he does get a ship and he does travel with Ariel. And like you said, her memories start to come back. And then we find out that her real name is Jirian, I guess is how I would pronounce it. Cause mm-hmm. for short, they would call her Jiri every once in a while. And Guinan meets her. And it's funny how the two names are somewhat similar. I think Christopher L. Bennett mentions that too in his annotations.
1: Yeah. Well, Guinan mentions it in the novel too, where right. I love that little bit where she says, you know, her name, and and she says she kind of laughs and like, what is it? Oh, just reminds me of the name of of someone I know. She's a good listener,
2: <laughs> and I was like, right, because yeah, she was yeah. going by a different name around her. Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't even remember what the name was. Darian, I think. Yeah. Oh, Darien, that's right. Because I remember it was somewhat similar to Gynet. No, I guess it's not. <laughs> anyway, but now we start to find out that. Ariel or Jirian are now out to destroy the Federation because they themselves tried to help the universe as much as they could back in their time, but it ended up into bad things and almost destroying things. And she's seeing a similar thing that could happen with the Federation and she sabotages the galaxy class program of ships, which I thought was cool because now it's connecting to the galaxy class ships with the Enterprises.
1: Yeah, this was a fascinating part of the story, this kind of invasive program that she introduces that would, you know, ensure all the galaxy class ships are destroyed by a few years, and, you know, taking families and children and stuff with them and and that sort of thing. That was, you know, really placing it at an interesting point in Star Trek history and that sort of thing and then Data's sussing this out and and figuring it out and really being kind of the hero of that part of the story. I thought was pretty cool. And, And we haven't really mentioned data yet, but we'll, we'll get to him too, for sure. But yeah, this was diabolical and brutal. And I think even later on, she realizes how terrible this plan was. And again, I still find myself questioning, does she mean that, or is she still being like, a good communicator and manipulative and stuff. I don't know, but it, it seems like, you know, as, as Guinan says, she went a little crazy after she got all the memories back and, and that sort of thing. So some of it maybe could be excused by that, but this is a really brutal plan for sure.
2: Cause she doesn't want to see the Federation repeat the things that they did. She, she wants to fix the wrongs and if it sacrifices lives, on the galaxy class starships, including children, well, that's a small price to pay for the overall universe. And it's chilling when she's willing to do that. Like you said, it's like, I think she, you know, she starts to regret that later, that the idea of doing that. But she also realizes, you know, but you have to make those sacrifices. And it is chilling. I don't know if she really regrets those thoughts or not. For the overall scheme, because she's almost like obsessed with this, which we're going to get into that a little more, too. Yeah, for sure. The other thing I want to mention
1: is I, I keep feeling like while I'm reading this novel, like I love Star Trek The Next Generation. I love what it became and I love where Star Trek went after that. But it feels like the galaxy class starship and and that idea was a bit of a wasted opportunity or at least like a direction that Gene Roddenberry wanted Star Trek The Next Generation to go that it ultimately didn't really go which was the idea of the galaxy class ships as gets described in this novel as like traveling universities in space and like this community and families and and out for years at a time and never coming back to port for years and years and that kind of thing. Like that's what it felt like at the end of encounter at Farpoint when they're setting out on their mission. But then like over the course of the series, they just kind of become a bit of a normal starship that does normal starshipy things. And, And it feels like something was lost a little bit along the way with regards to the premise of TNG and, and what, the galaxy class ships were supposed to represent and where Starfleet was going to go after that. But uh, like I said, I still love Star Trek and how it turned out, but it's kind of an interesting what if here, if they'd really stuck to that premise. That's, that's kind of a little bit separate from this novel, but something that occurred to me while I was reading it.
2: I've had those same thoughts. Yeah. Because when you watch, especially encounter at far point, that whole idea of the saucer separation too, you know, it's it's a city in space, and you have scientists, you have non-Federation people on there, and it, it's almost as if, like, yeah, if they were, it's almost like the premise was, if they're going to fight the Klingons, you're always going to do a saucer separation, you know, mm-hmm. and leave the city behind as you know the forces go and and deal with the the war that they have to face. And yeah, it didn't quite, it, it just became, like you said, almost like another starship. I mean, yes, we still had families and, and such, but it just, yeah, it wasn't the same. Like the, inte- it's almost like Voyager, the whole, you know, the Maquis, and then they just kind of fit in with everybody else.
1: Yeah. Cause, cause you watch like an episode, like the defector in TNG, which is one of my favorite episodes. Don't get me wrong. I love this episode, but in that one, Picard takes the Enterprise into the neutral zone to counter a possible Romulan threat. And he even has that speech with Tomaloc at the end where he says, you know, Tomaloc is like, is your crew willing to die? And he says, if the cause is just and blah, blah, blah. Yes, of course they are. And it's like, what about all the families and kids and stuff, Picard? Like the, the show just kind of forgot that when it wasn't, when it was uh, inconvenient, you know, they just kind of like, Oh yeah, right. All the, Eh, eh, don't worry about them. Yeah, because Picard, Picard's crew is willing to die. It's
2: fine. <laughs> yeah, because they're not all crew members. Because isn't Mott, he's a barber. He's not a, a yeah. Starfleet officer.
1: He's probably not really interested in dying in the neutral
2: zone, no. <laughs> right. And Guinan's a civilian. They had Yeah, they had civilians on the ship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, But, yeah. Um, I, in my headcanon, it's just that most civilians left. The project didn't work well, but some decided to stay and... You know, (laughs) I don't know. It's just (laughs) because to your point, I I hate to think that Picard's like, yes, I'm going to take, you know, hundreds of civilians into this. (laughs) No, hope not. But anyway, speaking of Picard. So we do see this bridge between his Stargazer command that ends to the beginning of his command of the Enterprise. But he is so obsessed with righting the wrongs. You know, he lost the Stargazer and he's released the Manor Loths off and, and who are looking to destroy the Federation. He feels like he has failed at least these two big events that he has caused. And yet he can't get over it. He's always trying to fix it. And he becomes so obsessed with it that it's realized that he always has so many wins in his life that when he has a loss, he has to make that loss into a win and he can't let it go. He's just always trying to fix things. And Ariel's the same way. She's trying to fix something. She's obsessed with the mistakes that her people made. So I really enjoyed these two parallel lines that these two people who are in love with each other really have a lot in common. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, it's, it's a great
1: lesson that, that he learns and stuff. And, I found a lot of what was happening here was setting up the Picard that we see in early TNG. And, you know, there's, there's kind of a few changes here and there as as to what his life brings him and and how it brings him to it. But yeah, he, he really becomes obsessed a bit, like you say, with, with writing those wrongs and that kind of thing. And, uh, there's a, there's a great quote where he kind of, um, comes around a little bit and realizes and I, I love this where he's talking to the being formerly known as ariel gearian or 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 however she calls herself um he says that sometimes we must learn to accept that we were simply not meant to succeed at everything we must accept our failures and we must forgive ourselves for them otherwise otherwise he went on rue- ruefully we may become so obsessed with our efforts to repair our mistakes that we are blinded to other priorities and end up causing more harm first to ourselves and eventually to others and i love that like that's such a huge lesson for picard and for ariel and the menriloth as well because of of what they've done you know they've been trying to guide the galaxy and be these parents to these you know trillions of children of theirs basically as they see them, but you know, they can't become obsessed with all the mistakes of the past. It blinds them to the good that can be done otherwise. So I, I really like that.
2: Yes. The obsession was just very interesting to me because it really helps to define Picard and distancing himself from others. And so we get this, more distant Picard when he boards the enterprise from his crew. You know, the other thing that occurred to me, he spent 22 years as captain of the stargazer yet. He seemed closer to his enterprise crew in a shorter period of time. You know, (laughs) at least that's what it seems like because the show focuses on the enterprise, you know, but you never hear him like talk about, you know, and reuniting with his stargazer crew members that often in TNG. But anyway, um, so yeah, this black hole has all this information that's I'm just gonna use the word downloaded into it. You know, it's just kind of hidden in there. And the uh manor loath want to get this information because it kind of reminded me of control from discovery, like all the secrets of the universe are there. It could be very dangerous, whoever can get this. But the manor loath thought, you know, they can always use this to get others, you know to join them in trying to correct the wrongs that they did by enticing, Hey, we'll give you some of this information once we get out of the black hole, you know? And I don't know. This part was a little interesting to me about having this stuff in the black hole. And I don't know. What did you think of it?
1: Yeah, I thought it was interesting. And I mean, I, it, it serves as kind of the final MacGuffin of the, of the story a little bit. And the, the effect that it has on everybody and, you know, the the Loth have failed to learn the lessons of the past, right? There's a little bit of like, oh, but the last time we did something like this, you know, it was disastrous and it caused the huge extinction that set this whole thing in motion that Picard was investigating and... They're like, well, you know, we're not doing exactly the same thing this time. This is a much smaller thing. It it, it won't happen again. But sure enough, once again, it's disastrous, right? So, yeah, I, I I liked it as the kind of final impetus for Ariel and her brethren to realize what they're doing and and why it's disastrous. And kind of coming to that realization and also the effect that it has on Picard to make him realize that, you know, it's not so black and white, right? Like Guinan, for example, comes to him and says, like, I've been in contact with the Manrel for a few months and, you know, I want you to come and negotiate with them. And he's just like, what? You've known about them for months. You're in league with them. They've manipulated you, Guinan place her under arrest. And, and like, he's very much the like Martinet and, you know, cutting himself off from everyone. And, and this kind of, again, is wh- why I was saying it leads into the Picard. We see in encounter at Farpoint where he doesn't want to, like he became close with his stargazer crew and was palling around with them and friends with them. And when we see him at the start of the next generation, he's not that person anymore, right? He's maintaining that that distance from them like a captain can't be friends with his crew and blah 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 very early on in TNG and but still the realization he comes to here that like it's not so black and white and Ariel and or or Giri Ayan is not completely evil she's just been misguided and stuff and It's a very Star Trek ending, really, what this all leads to, because I I appreciate that it wasn't solved with phasers and photon torpedoes. It was solved with learning a lesson and negotiating and talking. That's Star Trek, and that was perfect.
2: Yeah, I I agree with you 100% on that. But it ends, but not all the pieces are placed back to where they began. Like you said, we've seen changes in Picard because of these events that have taken place over many years. And the Manreloth also evolve. They evolve into another higher plane of being themselves. So in a lot of ways, they're able to move on where Picard still hasn't been able to. Yes. He takes another step forward in his career by taking command of the enterprise. But to your point, he has to be the captain. He's very stoic. He's very distant with his crew because of the, events that took place prior to this. He doesn't have that same relationship with this crew that he had with the stargazer crew, which eventually over time he does, he loosens up. And by the time we get to the movies, he's driving dune buggies and having a great old time. So, you know. mm-hmm. but I, I enjoyed this as a bridge. This is a really great novel that bridges from his early commands of the stargazer to the enterprise, the end of the stargazer, Uh, command to this enterprise command. But also I loved how he slowly introduced to certain members that become crew members of the enterprise. And it's just, it's not forced. They're just naturally appearing here and there. We had Dayton LaForge and Yar and Troy. And of course we already knew his past relationship with Dr. Crusher, but we even see a young Wesley Crusher. So what'd you think of the introduction of these future crew members. Well, I loved like
1: with the exception of Data and Troy, which I believe these were completely invented for the novel, these meetings and stuff. Like we got the story of how Picard met the Forge and we got the story of how Picard met Yar in previous episodes. And again, he just takes like that one or two lines of dialogue and expands it and makes it all fit. Like we knew that he was interested in Yar after he saw her rush onto a minefield to save somebody. And he's like, so impressed with her. And then the story about the forge staying up all night to recalibrate a shuttle systems, because as Picard said, he made some offhand comment about the, it being out of, phase or whatever but according to captain Zimbada, apparently he tore into Jordy about it so yes there's a question of an unreliable narrator who's right in that situation i don't know because picard in tng says oh i made some offhand comment about <laughs> but maybe that's not true but yeah i, I love that I, I thought that was terrific and as for the others like data as like basically a filing clerk working in the bowels of a star base because people are uncomfortable around him. And he's not particularly ambitious because of course he has no emotions. That was brilliant because one of the things that people always bring up about data is in TNG, he's a Lieutenant commander. So he's been in Starfleet for quite a while. So why is he so socially awkward and like, doesn't know a word like Snoop and all this kind of stuff. And that makes sense. Like Christopher Bennett takes these things that like, oh, this doesn't quite make sense. How can I massage this to make it make more sense? And like early in the episode, I was talking about how he sets these little tiny things up and it makes you go, oh, wow. Like Data being more casual with his language and using contractions and being more emotional, like we see at the start of TNG. He explains that. We've already brought up about Picard's coldness at the start of TNG and even Worf making an offhand comment in an episode to Geordi where he says, because the captain expects his junior officers to learn, learn, learn. (laughs) Like we see (laughs) the, the beginning of that here where Picard's like, Mr. Wolf, I want you to cross train in all these departments and you are going to be a great officer because... You know, I'm going to expect so much of you to learn every ship system and stuff. Or it's like,
2: uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I forgot about that. I love that part. Yeah, that was great. That was
1: so great. Yeah, and like I could picture it all. I could picture early Wharf, and when Bennett talks about him like talking to Picard through his teeth, I'm like, oh yeah, that's totally season one Wharf. Like I love that. But yeah, all of these little meanings, and Deanna Troy, of course, being. Uh, there to kind of spy on Picard early on. Like, I, I I love these relationships that he's forming with all of these people and we'll see them all together on the bridge of the Enterprise at one point, finally. So I, the setup perfectly. I love that part. I wasn't expecting that part of the novel when I first read it. So that was a really nice treat.
2: Now, if anything, you might expect, oh, you might see them at the very, very end when he takes command of the mm-hmm. Enterprise, but not built over time. And again, just like Janeway, they make their appearances for a while. They have a reason to be there. And then we leave them for a while. you know. We get them at the end again when he takes the Enterprise, but they're not there for the whole story. And I did enjoy Data a whole heck of a lot because he was just so socially awkward. Nobody wants to talk to him. No one one knows how to relate to this android. But if anything, it took Picard to kind of step in and hold Data's hand. So it was nice to see him kind of be a mentor to Data. And with Troy being assigned by this admiral to spy on Picard, it's great when she just reveals almost immediately to Picard, hey, you know, it's my ethical duty to tell you what I'm doing. You know, I I, I don't agree with this, you know, how, that I'm spying on you, so I'm just letting you know this is who I am. I'm a counselor. I'm a this, that, whatever, and I've been assigned to do this, and I just have to be honest with you. And Picard and even the Admiral that told her to do this acknowledged that that was the right thing to do, that she was right, you know? And it's uh-huh. like so— you're seeing Picard say I like this one, I like this one, I like this one. And then when he gets to command of ship, hey, let me bring these. The only thing I wish that would have been addressed when he's picking his crew, and this gets back to what I said earlier about the Stargazer, why he didn't bring anybody from the Stargazer over. Now I assume, yes, they're all on other assignments and such, but in Star Trek we see where Kirk leaves the enterprise or, you know, anybody who leaves the ship for a while or whatever, they tried to bring at least some of their friends back with them on the new mission, you know, and we don't have that here. So I wish there would have been just a little explanation of why Picard didn't want to bring any of his former stargazer officers with him.
1: See, I think I can explain that a little bit from the events of the novel, because by the end of the stargazer mission, like he feels the way that mission ended was a failure and he betrayed all of his stargazer crew members. Right. Because when they get back to the star base, he won't even visit with them. Like he's so. That's true. Yeah. You know, that's kind of where my mind went as to why he like that chapter of his life is something that he's really ashamed of. And again, is one of those quote unquote mistakes that he obsesses over. Right. So yeah, well, I, I don't know. Point. I, yeah. I kind of thought that he was just so burned by that or, or felt that he had betrayed his, his crew, which, you know, isn't warranted, I don't think, but that's kind of where his mind is.
2: Yeah. I know. I like you say that. I think you're right. I, that works. So yeah, I wish uh, Bennett would have said something at the end when he's picking his crews. Like, and of course, you know, I, I I'm i not going to bring anybody from the stargazer for what I did, you know, something like that in his mind mm-hmm. or something. I would have liked that, but Overall, I love this novel. It's it's so freaking good. It's, it's up there as one of my top ones. So, Dan, final thoughts, final review? Yeah, this
1: has long been one of my favorite novels since I first read it a few years ago. And rereading it this time, I had so much fun revisiting it. Again, the word epic <laughs> comes to mind. It's just such a huge, spanning story. And then the... the the quintessentially Star Trek elements of it, right? The, the wonder and the thrill of discovery and excitement of exploration, I think just oozes out of these pages. So, you know, if, if someone's looking for a novel to maybe get into TNG or, or really like capture the spirit of Star Trek, maybe they've watched Star Trek Picard and they want to know more about this character outside of just, Star Trek, the next generation. I think this is just a terrific character study into what makes Jean-Luc Picard tick and and what kind of person we see at the start of Star Trek, the next generation. And even just the little hints, like we even get Q setting out on his mission to test Picard and them at the end. Right. Like there's so much in here that he just ties all the little bits, the continuity porn that I talked about that he's so good at. I I love it all. Like the ingredients are all there for just the perfect Star Trek cake of a novel <laughs> that I consume guiltily because it's so much fun. So, I mean, I can't give this, I think any less than, Oh man, I'd say five out of five stasis fields that uh, are opened wonderfully and, and without any sort of horrible incidents going wrong. And, and yeah, <laughs>
2: Nice. Yeah, I was just thinking about my rating. I was like, I might use stasis fields. And I thought, no, I bet Dan will, and you did. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so <laughs> predictable. We we <laughs> always pick the same ones, but, but I have another one. So yeah, I'm going to give this five out of five drinks served by Guinan because you know what? The Enterprise should have a bar on it. Yeah, That's totally. To and Picard. Picard
1: says, you know, if
2: I have a ship, I'll make sure there's a bar on it. <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah, we got one. But yeah, I love the novel. To your point, all the connections. But even if you're not a huge Star Trek fan, it's a really good novel about a man that just, you know, he, he has losses. And he's a man who's always used to winning. And his obsession of correcting those losses and make them into wins... While going on these exploration missions, you know, this quest to find the Holy Grail, you know, and so it's, it's an entertaining science fiction adventure. I really enjoyed it a lot. So, yeah, I gave it five out of five. And so, yeah, we can't recommend it any more than that. So I think this is a real winner. Absolutely agreed. So that, therefore, we should get more Lost Era novels. (laughs) (laughs) Or actually get more novels by Christopher L. Bennett. There you go. Why not both? (laughs) I'm all for it. Let's bring it on. So Dan, when people want to discuss Lost Era or any novels or anything Star Trek with you, where can they find you? The Positively Trek discussion group. Comment on this
1: thread about this episode because I'm curious what other people think about it. But you can also find me on Twitter at KurtRatz and on YouTube.com slash Productions.
2: And you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. That's Admiral with the underline Rex. And you can find me occasionally on the Star Wars Report podcast and Literary Treks. So thanks everyone for joining us. So get to reading and stay positive.